Dear church family, several months ago, we, as we considered the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ into this world as a, as a human being, we did so by considering the first of the three servant songs of Isaiah, which you could find in Isaiah 42, 49, and 50. Several times as we considered those, those songs, we were, we were directed, encouraged, commanded to, to behold the servant of the Lord. You remember from the first song, the Lord himself says, Behold my servant whom I uphold, mine elect in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him, and he shall bring forth judgment to the Gentiles. We, note, we noted from that first song that Jesus, the, the servant, was one who was chosen, equipped, humble, gracious, and that he would be eminently successful. Highlighted in the song was the fact that he was very God and a, a real human being. And then as we turn to the second song, we heard the servant himself speaking to us, and he called us to pay attention. Listen, O isles, unto me, and hearken, ye people, from afar. As we, as we listened to the servant speak in this song, we heard his acknowledgement that his mission, his work as the servant would be hard challenging and and difficult we we read we hear what he said i have labored in vain i have spent my strength for naught and in vain and yet surely my judgment is with the lord and my work with my god then in the third song once more the servant himself speaks and as he speaks he's confessing that in his humanity he is one who who needs to be taught to be the faithful servant of the Lord, who, who could minister to his own. Who, he, was, he confesses that he was one who was prepared for this mission that he was being called to, and that he was helped as he walked in obedience. Verse 7 of chapter 50, For the Lord God will help me, and therefore shall I not be confounded. Therefore have I set my face like a flint, and I know that I shall not be ashamed. Now it's easy for us, particularly if we've grown up in the church and we've been instructed with the teachings of the Word of God, and we, we understand the gospel message particularly as it's explained and given to us in the, the four Gospels, that this servant is none other than our Lord Jesus Christ, and that he came into this world and he suffered in his life and his death. We can, we can, un, we can begin to understand and, and see what Isaiah is, is talking about as he gives these three servant songs. But I want, to try, want you to try to place yourself in a Jew of Isaiah's day. As they heard these prophecies of Isaiah and of the other prophets, as they heard these three, three servant songs so far, maybe they were left with questions like, why would this servant of the Lord be tempted to turn back? Who, who would want to smite him? Why would people want to pluck the hair out of his beard? Why were they spitting on him? Why was he being put to shame? If he was the chosen one who was called, equipped for service, why would people contend with him? Well, it's the fourth song that Isaiah gives that we begin to get some answers to some of these questions, where Isaiah, with incredible clarity, with vividness, begins to describe the sufferings of the servant 
with, with incredible accurate reflection of what our Lord Jesus Christ went through as he went to the cross. As he describes the, this intense suffering that he's going to face, but also it begins to answer the question of why. Why did the servant have to come? The song begins in verse 13 of chapter 52. And the song is divided into five sections of three verses each. So we have the first section in verses 13 through 15. And then in chapter 53, we have four additional sections of three verses each. And Isaiah begins the very first section, the, the beginning of the song, with this, this bold interjection Behold, my servant. Once more, he begins this, this song, this fourth song, as he began the first song. Behold, my servant. Stop what you're doing and pay attention to the servant. To my servant. And then in the next, then in the, in the five stanzas of this of this song, Isaiah begins to portray why we should behold him. The first stanza is really an introduction that sets the tone for the, for the rest of the song. And it increases the tension as, as, as the song, as he comes to grips with who the servant is and, and what it will take for him to accomplish the task that God had called him to. And this tension is portrayed in an incredible contrast within these first three verses of the, of the song. Verse 13, the Lord says, The servant, my servant, will deal prudently. He shall be exalted and extolled and be very high. The song opens up with, My servant is going to be successful. He's going to accomplish what he has set out to do. And he will be honored by the Lord and by others. But quickly, as we turn to the next verse, we quickly see that this isn't always appeared to be the case. From a human standpoint, as we consider just from a mere human standpoint, if we were to see Jesus as he walked those 33 years on this earth, We're going to look at him, and he says we're going to be astonished. Many were astonished at him. Many, the idea is that many were appalled. They were appalled at him. His visage, his face was so marred more than any man, and his form more than the sons of men. As people considered him in his humanity, they were unsettled. They were unnerved at his very appearance. <clears throat> but regardless of human perception of who he was and would be as he walked this earth, this, the Isaiah in the song quickly comes back to the fact that he is going to be successful as the servant in this introduction. Verse 15, he says, He shall sprinkle many nations. And kings will be astonished at him, will shut their mouths at him. The idea of sprinkling there is the idea of cleansing, of sprinkling in terms of purification. He could cleanse, he would cleanse men, women, boys and girls from many nations, from all walks of life, so that even kings would would stand in awe and shut their mouths, stand speechless before him at his success, even though he was one who was marred and disfigured. And so our, our, our hope tonight is to take a moment and to behold this suffering servant that we've just been introduced in the first stanza of this song. And we, we are four points are going to focus on each of the next four stanzas. We want to behold him in our first point in his 
unbelievable or incredible humanity. And our second point, we want to behold the suffering servant in his, his vicarious substitution. And in our third point, we want to look at the, at the suffering servant in his voluntary submission. And then finally, in our, in our last point, we want to behold him in his vindicated success. Behold the suffering servant. In verse 1 of chapter 53, Isaiah begins, Who hath believed our report? And to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? From the outset, Isaiah is, is asking, well, who's going to believe our report of this suffering servant? Who's going to believe this message? For in his humanity, he seems to be one who no one would desire, no one would want to look at. Rather, that he would be one who we would, as it were, turn our noses up at, or we would walk to the other side of the street, one who we would in our inner nature despise and reject. Isaiah knows the human heart, but he also understands that if there is going to be a response, it's going to be because of the fact that the arm of the Lord has been revealed. This expression that we have here, to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed, or to whom is the arm of the Lord made bare, has the idea of, of the Lord's power and activity. And when he works, when the Lord works in the hearts and lives of sinners, as he shows his power, we cannot help but respond in faith and obedience. And it's then that we will stand in awe and wonder and amazement at the suffering servant. So a question, a question for each of us, a question that Isaiah asked, have you believed the report? Have you believed the message concerning the suffering servant? Or are you like those who, when we hear of the humanity of Christ, you can't understand it, you can't grasp it? It's because we're blind by nature to our need. Um, we need God's supply of grace to see. When we are blind to our need, when we are blind to what God is doing for sinners, we see, as Isaiah describes for us in verses 2 and 3, we see, we see one who is just like a, a, a tender plant. He says, he shall grow up before him as a tender plant, as a root out of dry ground. The, the idea behind this word tender plant is, is but like a, a worthless twig that is, that is to be broken off. It's, it's like the Children, maybe you've seen on a, on a, a mature tree uh, a little suckling growing uh, on the base of the trunk that seems to be just draining the energy for the rest of the tree, and maybe your dad comes along and cuts it off or pulls it off. That's the picture here. This worthless piece, that's how he's being viewed something to be removed, to be broken off. And not only that, it's growing in ground that is dry and barren. Any thought of success for growth is soon vanishes away as we consider the soil that this plant is, is growing in. And when we see him from a physical standpoint, He's absolutely unattractive, Isaiah tells us. 
He was not a man who stood out. There was no beauty, he says, that we should desire him. And his sufferings, we're told, only added to his, his appearance, his unattractiveness. Verse 3, he, he was despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as a result, we hid, as it were, our faces from him. His appearance was marred, disfigured. As he became acquainted with the, the grief and the suffering, intimately acquainted, he became as one who had no form or comeliness. If you remember from last week, Jesus came as a human being, as one created in the image of God. And here he was as he lived his life for 33 years, one who had not sinned, had done nothing to bear to, for the, that image to break down. And yet we, we read that he had no form nor comeliness. He was despised. He was rejected of men. By people like you and me. We, says Isaiah, hid, as it were, our faces from him. It's kind of like we've, we hid. We saw him coming and we couldn't handle the sight and we, we, we went around the corner, as it were. We ignored him. We didn't see his value. We thought he was irrelevant. We did not esteem him. And this is what we all do by nature, friends. When we hear of the suffering servant, when we hear of his real humanity, when we, when, when we consider that he came into this world, and we don't have, haven't come to our, the realization of who we are as sinners, we, why? Why would someone do this? And as a result, we don't see anything attractive in him. We don't see any value in his being made acquainted with grief and sorrow. But friend, when your eyes are open to see him for who he is, to see yourself, who you are, what was once ugly, disgusting to our flesh, becomes beautiful. It becomes our only hope. What once seemed utterly worthless in his knowing and being intimately acquainted with grief, sorrow, and pain becomes tremendous comfort in our grief, pain, and sorrow. Because we recognize he's one who is able to sympathize with us in in our suffering and to help us in our time of need, as Hebrews 4 tells us. But can our eyes be opened? Can we, can we see him for who he really is? Can we behold his beauty? And the answer is, of course, we can. But it's only because of who he is and because of who he became for us as we consider our, our second thought, as he became our substitute. We move to the, the second or the third stanza of the song, verses four, four through six. As we begin to see why he had no form or comeliness, as we begin to understand that there was no... There was no beauty there that we should desire him and despise and, re- and we rejected him. We begin to see that the reason he is like this is because he became our substitute. Notice with me in verses 4 through 6 the, the contrast between him and us or our. He hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. He was wounded for our transgressions. 
He was bruised for our iniquities. He bore the chastisement for our peace. He bore stripes with which we are healed. He for us. He in our place. The suffering servant became our great substitute. In three ways he became, Isaiah describes for us in these verses, our vindicating substitute. First, he he became our substitute by taking our sorrows and griefs. The sorrows and griefs that he was acquainted with intimately were the sorrows and griefs of his people. Those whose place he took. He took to himself your sorrow and your grief over your sin. The suffering servant bore them in your place. So you don't have to continue to sorrow after sin. The Lord Jesus bore them, carried them, and he carried them all the way to the cross where he was smitten and stricken. He bore the sorrows and griefs of of the consequences of our sin. the, The consequences that we experience because of choices of sins we've done in life. And we live for them with the rest of our life. Sorrows like David experienced as as he dealt with the lifelong strife of family that existed in of strife that existed in his family because of his sin. But also the sins and griefs of the sorrows and griefs of the sins of others that impact us or of the fall in general. He bears up his people in the midst of the grief and sorrow that we face as we sit alongside a a bed of a sick relative. He carries the sorrows and grief of his people as, as they mourn the loss of loved ones and dear ones who are dear unto them. Like he did with Mary and Martha as he, as he came and wept with them at the grave of their dear brother Lazarus. He was so thoroughly acquainted with them as if they were his own. And it marred him. It caused him to have no form nor comeliness. So acquainted was he with our sorrows and griefs that at the end of verse 4 it says that we, we did esteem him stricken and smitten of God and afflicted. The idea is that one would think he was being smitten, stricken, afflicted of God because of, who, of his sins, because of the things that were done by him. But he was innocent. He had no sin. But he bore, he was bearing the sin, the, the, the sorrows and griefs of his people. Our sorrows, our griefs. But not only did he become our substitute in bearing our sorrows and griefs, but he also bore and took on himself our sins. Isaiah describes them as iniquities and transgressions in verse 6. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. These are two common words, biblical words for sin. And the word for iniquities describes something that's crooked. And Jesus, as he took on the sins of his people, as he bore them, it's as he were, he became crooked, the crooked one under the load of our sins, bent over beyond recognition. But not only did he just carry our sins, but he carried the guilt of our sins. And as he carried the sins, our guilt, he also was bearing the wrath of God against our sins. So tremendous was the weight 
that as he went to Gethsemane, he was crying out to his father, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. And then on the cross, we hear him cry under the the magnitude of the wrath of God that's being pressed upon him. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? What a weight it must have been for Jesus as he hung there on the cross. As he took your sins, my sins, dear people of God. As he bore the wrath of his father, as he missed the favorable presence of his father. And he did this, he did this for sinners. He did this for you, dear child of God. Not only to be forgiven of your sins, but to be made free from the guilt of sin so that you too could come into his presence to have peace, reconciliation, being reconciled to, the, to God so that you could know his favorable presence once more so that you could experience his, his healing hand, his gracious hand of restoration, so that you could live life with no more guilt, no more shame, the power of sin broken in your life. Not only did he bear our sorrows and griefs, not only did he bear our transgressions, carry them, but he bore the punishment that we deserve. He was wounded, or the idea is he was pierced. He was bruised, that is, crushed to death under the weight of God's wrath. He was chastised and beaten with poignancy and accuracy, Isaiah describes the punishment that Jesus bore for the iniquities of the transgressions of his people. For your sin, dear child of God, Jesus bled. He bled as he prayed in the garden. He bled as he, as he bore one blow after another as his body was torn and shred with the whip. He bled as the nails pierced through his hands as the soldiers hit them home. He bled under the crushing weight of his own body as he hung on the cross, struggling for each breath. Jesus had his body broken, had his blood shed as he gave his life so that sinners like all of us can have life when we rest and trust in him alone. And he did this for people who didn't esteem him, for a people who despised him, for a people who saw no beauty in him that they would desire him. He did this for people who were like sheep who had gone astray, who had turned everyone to his own way. Have you seen him? Have you beheld him? Have you seen him as the one who has taken your place? so that you could be parted, that you could be justified, that you could stand in the presence of the Lord, vindicated, perfect in his sight. Friend, if you have, he calls you to remember his death next week. He calls you to partake, remembering, giving thanks for what he has done for such as you are. But he didn't, 
and he did this willingly. As we consider in our, in our next thought in, in verses 7 through 9, in his humanity, in his, in his role as our substitute, he came willingly. And he humbled himself with submission to his father's will. And this, this humble submission to his father's will was displayed throughout his life, as we can read in the Gospels. But it was particularly as he approaches death in those final days and in his death and even in his burial that we see this on full display. And Isaiah draws our attention to this in this next stanza. First in his life, and particularly at the end of his life, when he bore his, the, his suffering and shame in silence, Isaiah draws our attention to. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Jesus willingly permitted himself to endure false accusations, from the religious leaders as they accused him, as they brought him to Pilate and Herod. He didn't respond. He didn't respond to the mockings, the slaps, the whipping. He didn't respond in kind like we so often do. But he remained silent. Even in the face of intense interrogation, even in the face, in the reality that he was innocent, over and over in his trial before the religious leaders in Herod, we read, and he answered them not a word. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter, silent. What a contrast we have in our own sufferings when we endure oppression, affliction, maybe accusations that are false. We are actually encouraged to cry out to the Lord, to come to him for help. Like Israel in the midst of her bondage in Egypt turned and cried to the Lord and the Lord heard them. But Jesus in the midst of his undeserved affliction in the midst of his undeserved suffering opened not his mouth one commentator says no self-defense or protest issued from his mouth he could have but he didn't because as we already considered he had become our substitute he was he was willing to take the place of his people he voluntarily, willingly placed himself in that position. And so in the eyes of Pilate, in the eyes of the religious leaders, his silence said he was guilty. And so he was sentenced to death. As we see in our next aspect of his willingness, he, he willingly gave himself over to death. In verse 8, we, see, we read, He was taken from prison and from judgment, and who shall declare his generation? For he was cut off out of the land of the living. Not only voluntarily, willingly endured the false accusations, the beatings, the mockery, but as, as the sentence of death came, he did not resist those who carried out the, his execution. Verse 8 describes the carrying out of that execution. He was taken from the prison, from, from the, his forced confinement, as he was condemned as guilty in that judicial court, declared guilty by Pilate, by the religious leaders, 
for they didn't care an iota about truth or justice or his life. And not only as he, he did he remain silent up to this point, but as his death was impending, as he, as he was being carried to the cross, even in the midst of his trial, he was always looking out for, for the, his people. As he was enduring all this, he was one who was still caring for. We read of that searching look of Peter as he looked at Peter in the judgment hall. Or as he's walking to the cross or to, to, to Golgotha, we read him speak to a great company of people and the woman who bewailed and lamented him, telling them to pray, not to mourn for him, but for themselves. Or even as he was being crucified, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And even as he hung on the cross, he was ministering to others, the thief, today you shall be with me in paradise. And to his mother, he commended her into the care of his beloved disciple, John. Jesus willingly went to the cross, went to death, because he cared for his people. He went there for, as the end of verse 8 says, for the transgression of my people was he stricken. The suffering servant went willingly to death because he knew he had to die on account of the sins of his people. He willingly, voluntarily suffered injustice and death so that people like you, like you, like me, can have life. He willingly had his body broken and shed his blood. He willingly was cut off from the land so that you could go free. And even after he died, he could have been taken up to glory but he willingly permitted himself to enter into a grave, to be buried, to go the way of fallen humanity. Verse 9, and he made his grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death because he had done no violence and neither was any deceit in his mouth. Even though he was innocent, even though he was not worthy of death, he not only died, but he permitted himself to be buried among sinners. And he did this so that he could demonstrate to his disciples, to us, that he had really died. He had died on the cross. And his body was lifeless. They saw it and they laid it in a grave. but also to demonstrate that he, would, that he would rise again and they would see him with his own eyes. If Christ had been directly taken to heaven, we would have not seen the resurrection. So he permitted himself to be buried so that in seeing him as the risen Lord, we could be certain of our faith, Paul says in 1 Corinthians, but we can also be certain of our own resurrection, that one day, if we are in Christ, we will be with him in glory. And we'll hope to consider a little bit more of that in our, as we consider the last stanza of this song um, in his success. But we're going, we're going to sing first from Psalter 47, the cross of Calvary, verses 1 through 5.
Isaiah had begun this fourth song with the success of the servant, and he concludes in this last stanza, verses 10 through 12, with the, the success of God's, of his servant. Even though the servant had suffered tremendously, died and was buried, the song concludes as the rest of the scriptures bear witness to that he is alive and reigns. It speaks powerfully, this last verse, this last stanza to the, to the success, success of the suffering servant. Listen, listen as I read various ver- parts of verses 10 through 12. Verse 10, he shall see his seed. Verse 11, he shall see the travail of his soul. Back to verse 10, he shall prolong his days. Verse 12, I will divide him a portion and he shall divide the spoil. Isaiah portrays this in what's going to happen. These are future tenses, these things shall take place. He shall see his seed. He shall see the travail of his soul and dead people don't see. Jesus is risen and he will see the results, the fruit of his labors. He will see his seed being coming to him. He will see the, the fruit of his labors, the travail of his soul. In verse 10 it says, he shall prolong his days. That is, he will live. He is alive. He's not just alive, but he's ruling as the conquering king. As he divides the spoils of a successful war with his subjects. And Isaiah is so sure of this that he speaks of the redemptive mediatorial work of the suffering servant in the past tense as if it's already happened. Look with me at verse 12 as Isaiah gives the reason. Because he hath poured out his soul into death, because he was numbered with the transgressors, because he bare the sin of many, because he made intercession for the transgressors. Did you catch that? Isaiah here writing some 700 years before Christ speaks of his work in the past tense. He has poured out, not he will pour out. He was numbered, not he will be numbered. He bear, not he will will bear or would bear. He made intercession, not he will make intercession. Isaiah is certain the successful suffering servant would come and, and in him coming, the outcome is guaranteed. The suffering servant would be vindicated. And Isaiah gives three different perspectives on how this is going to take place in verses 10 through 12. In verse 10, he says that the pleasure of the Lord, the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. And what is the pleasure of the Lord? What would this look like? Well, if we turn to Ephesians 1, the Apostle Paul describes for us the the redemptive work of of the triune God. And in verse 5 he says, having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself according to the good pleasure of his will. The adoption of children. The adoption of those who had been predestined as God's children would come into the family of God. Those who had been elected would be made the seed that the servant would see. And God did this 
God predestined a people to be adopted as sons and daughters because of the good pleasure of his will. And so it, it pleased the Lord to bruise the suffering servant so that the pleasure of the Lord would prosper in his hand, so that a seed would come to him, would come to know him, so that a seed would, would be incorporated into the family of God, so that that covenant seed that God promised to Abram, as we heard last week, Sunday morning, would come to fruition. The Lord was pleased to send his son so that the good pleasure of his will would be seen, would prosper, so that sinners, sinners like each of us here, can come to him in repentance and faith, believing on the Lord Jesus Christ for our salvation alone, and, and in believing and trusting in him, we are brought into the family of God, become sons and daughters of the King. And this is on account of Jesus' finished work as the suffering servant. The second, the second aspect that the Isaiah draws our attention to in terms of the success of the servant is the fact that he shall see the travail of his soul and be satisfied. Sinners will be forgiven. Not only made sons and daughters of the king, but will be justified and will know the Lord their God. He shall see the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied and by his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. And Paul actually draws our attention to this again in, in Ephesians chapter 1. In verse 7, In him, in Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace. Why? He's going to go on in verse 9, because he has made known unto us the mystery of his will, which is also according to his good pleasure, which he hath purposed in himself. It is because of Jesus' suffering and death, intense suffering and death, his willingness to, to be this suffering servant, that sinners like you and I can know the forgiveness of sins. That sinners who trust in Christ can know that they are forgiven, justified, declared righteous before, before the Lord because of the suffering servant who has borne their iniquities. And Isaiah says, Jesus shall see the travail of the soul. He will see sinners come to him because he is the one, as we heard this morning, who sees sinners and looks at them and calls them to follow him as he did with Levi. But thirdly, as the suffering servant, he also is successful because he reigns and his, his reign is victorious. For his father has lifted him up unto his right hand in heavenly places. And Isaiah describes it this way, Therefore I will divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil of the, of the strong. This is the language of a, of a conquering king who has conquered his enemies and has looted and plundered their lands. And he comes back to his people and he spreads out the gifts to his subjects. He shares the spoils of his victory with his own people. Isaiah, uh, Paul again describes this in Ephesians chapter 4. When he ascended up on high, he led captivity captive and he gave gifts unto men. Jesus, as the victorious, conquering, suffering servant, not only brings a people to himself, calling them 
justifying them, declaring them righteous in his sight, but he also gives them good gifts. He leads them beside green pasture, into green pastures and beside still waters. He restores their soul. He bestows upon them gifts so that, and graces so that they can go out and serve him with thankful hearts. So that they can, through living out of him, can become more conformed to his image, looking forward to his return. Church family, we've, we've briefly, just as it were, scanned the surfaces of this passage. We could have split each of these st- stanzas of this song into individual sermons and delve deeply into them. We've beheld the servant. He was lifted up for us tonight again in his incredible humanity as the beautiful substitute for sinners, as the willing lamb of God, as the servant, now king who reigns. But Isaiah's question is still pertinent at the end of the message. Who has believed our report? Are there any to whom the arm of the Lord has been revealed, even tonight? The question is, how, how are you, how am I responding to this message of the suffering servant, this picture that we have been given by Isaiah of the suffering servant? How are you responding to the report? We have attempted to set before you the beauty, the glory, the splendor of the suffering servant. How are you, how will you respond? How have you responded? Do you still see no beauty in him? Do you still reject him, despise him. There's nothing to be desired in him. Or have, has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Has the powerful arm of God broke into your life so that you now see him for who he really is? Have you come to see the suffering servant that he was wounded for your transgressions? Bruised for your iniquities? Chastised for your peace? That the stripes he bore were for your healing? Have you come to see that as he stood there silent before the religious leaders, before Pilate, before the Herod, that he stood there silent so that you could go free? Have you experienced the forgiveness of sins, which was the travail of his soul? so that you would know that you are one of his children, one of his seed. Have you been made partakers of his good gifts as he divides the spoils of his finished work to those that love him and serve him? Friend, if you have been able to recognize who you once were as one who despised him, but now sees Jesus in his beauty and his glory as the suffering servant. 
He calls you next Lord's Day to feed at his table, to come to him, to remember his suffering and death. For he is worthy. He is worthy to be served, to be praised. For he is the beautiful suffering servant. Amen. Lord Jesus, we stand in awe of what thou hast done and who thou art. So acquainted, so intimately acquainted with sorrows and griefs, but not thine own, those of thy people. that thou was one who was disfigured, marred, seen as unattractive and irrelevant. But Lord, we are so thankful that when the arm of the Lord is revealed in our lives, that we see Jesus for who he really is, for his beauty, for his majesty, for his incredible willingness to be our substitute, to take upon himself our sins, to go the way of the cross, to be buried, but to rise again, victorious, the king of kings, the lion lamb, Oh, Lord Jesus, we, we love Thee. We desire to live holy for Thee. And we do pray that each of Thy people would respond in faith and obedience to the call to remember Thy death this coming Lord's Day. And may, they, may Thy people, each one, from the strong to, to the to the, to the weakest among us. Be strengthened, be nourished, be refreshed. Lord, to take up their callings, to walk in thy ways, and to serve thee. Do pray that this week would be a week where we are beholding the servant with anticipation of seeing him next Sunday morning. And we pray this in Christ's beautiful name. Amen. Well, now sing.